open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the podcast. We have with us Elizabeth Rossiello. She's CEO and founder of BitPesa, which is doing some great work over in Africa. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you actually had the longest flight here, 40 hours. Good gracious. Uh, you know, how'd you get into Bitcoin? Like, what got you started in it? Sure. Well, you can hear the flight in my, like, stuffed up nose right now. <laughs> All the germs from the travel. One of the hazards of being uh, based in an emerging market where our team is. I moved to East Africa in 2009 to work in microfinancial services. So I was working in investment banking before that and political economy before that. I was kind of in the boom of the introduction of microfinancial services to the continent. So a lot of money coming in from a lot of investors, a lot of governments, institutions, trying to do micro-loans, micro-insurance, micro-credit all over the continent. We saw a lot of good things happen out of that and a lot of crazy things. I guess it was its own little bubble. And um, one of the really exciting things that came out of that was something called mobile money. And mobile money is essentially domestic closed-loop digital currencies. So like M-Pesa exactly. would be an example? So M-Pesa is the brand name of Vodafone's local subsidiary mobile money. Um, you also have MTN mobile money, Airtel money, Orange money, Tigo Cash. Those are some of the mobile money providers that are active in sub-Saharan Africa. Southeast Asia, South America also have different variants on that. And what it essentially is, is a pegged store of value directly tied to the local currency that you prepay in cash for. So you can rock up to a local shop on the corner and hand over cash and get that equivalent put on your phone, almost like a prepaid card, except it's tied to your SIM card number and your identity. So if you lose it, you can ask the telco for another version of it. And it's near free and instant to move it around domestically. So when that kind of came out, that really revolutionized the way financial services were rolled out, products were rolled out. So it was almost kind of like a free Bitcoin technology. The only thing is it's closed loop. So it doesn't work across companies or across borders. So we brought the idea of digital currency, linking that to local kind of digital currencies, trying to make financial services there more international. And so like what percentage of the Kenyan GDP would you say is being done with these digital currencies currently? I should, yeah, I should actually know this number off the head. I see it all the time. I think it's like a good 60-70%. Holy cow. Yeah, I mean a huge, huge portion of the GDP goes over this. I mean, I don't touch cash anymore. Um, I use it to buy tomatoes. I use it to pay for my kids' school fee tuitions. Coca-Cola? Coca-Cola, everything. Pay for hotels, flights. Um, travel, I pay salaries, uh, you can pay taxes and parking tickets, uh, police fines, everything in, in this money. It's 
it's great. It's a great way to, to get things done. It's almost like skipped over the legacy technology. Yeah, so they've gone directly from like being in their grass cash. huts and cash. <laughs> well, that, well, that's crazy. I mean, grass huts. <laughs> I'm the poorest person in my neighborhood. Everybody's driving an SUV and like living in condos. <laughs> oh, so so I mean, people think that like. That's that that yeah. Africa is like the jungle, right? Yeah, or, well, or the savanna, but people are actually like in SUVs. Yeah, and, I mean, Africa is not a country. Africa is a very diverse continent that's enormous. If you've ever seen the map, you see that like North America, Europe, Asia, like fit into the African continent. I mean, it's well, that's pretty a, crazy. That's actually an interesting point. It's which map? Because like the longitude and latitude lines actually distort the size of North America. Yeah. And, ma- and so most of the maps that North Americans see. North America is actually a lot larger geographically no, because of that yeah. than than what it is actually. Yeah, and I don't mean to speak for all of Africa. I mean, my specialty lies in East Africa. Um, we launched in Ghana recently. Um, certainly different markets in Africa are very different, and I'm talking about Sub-Saharan Africa. North Africa is a whole other animal. Um, but definitely Nairobi is a boom town. Inflation, growth. I mean, this is like Hong Kong was 15, 20 years ago. I'm seeing skyscrapers, highways, huge pipelines coming in. I mean, there's a very emerging middle class. Everybody wants to buy stuff online and pay for things, and they don't have always the right the right tools. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I actually had a, a roommate from Brazil, and people would kind of joke, like, well, what's it like in Brazil? And he's like, well, we live up in the tree huts, and, like, we swing around on vines. Yeah, <laughs> like, been... like, people who haven't traveled just don't really understand yeah, what it's I mean, like in a lot of no these parts clue. of the world. Yeah, people have no clue. I mean, the... The diaspora, which is the population that lives abroad from the region, are like highly educated, wealthy individuals. This is not like someone coming up to a remittance counter paying a couple of pennies to send home. I mean, these are Oxford Ivy League grads running really successful businesses who are putting their putting their profits back into real estate. I mean, I think it's a real disservice to say that. And a lot of people who say, oh, cool, you're doing an African business. Oh, you must be so proud of yourself. You know, I'm not vaccinating orphans. I'm one of, I'm a, I'm a profit. <laughs> I'm over there to make some money. <laughs> I'm a for-profit business in a, in a booming economy. I'm part of one of many in a, in a, in a burgeoning kind of ecosystem of startups. So um, it's an exciting place to, to business. Yeah, actually, I had a friend who went over to Rwanda to buy some real estate. Yeah, because if you have economic growth that's taking place at this type of a rate, and you're going to have currency appreciation because of some of this. I mean, you could really have a multiplied return, especially on real estate. Yeah, I mean, from these I, types of and people are, and I mean, like, there's tons of money being made. I mean, honestly, I think there's a lack of familiarity with Americans from I mean, from East Africa because of the the political conflict we see in Somalia. Kind of like turns everybody off to the region. But if you look at kind of um, even the tourism boom, which is a big chunk of the economy. Everybody on the coast of Kenya is from from Europe. So, I mean, that's kind of like the Caribbean for a lot of Europeans. So there's a lot more familiarity from Europeans because they just happen to travel there more frequently. Now, if, if Bitcoin gets accepted over here, you know, and we're not using the closed-loop systems, but we're actually using a protocol that would be interoperable with our other systems, much easier, you know, we got like Coinbase, etc., that makes it interoperable with ACH, then... You know, my buddy, who's the real estate investor, his tenants could be paying their rent with Bitcoins sure, sure. very easily, right? And that's what we're doing. Like right now, we're, we're bringing an onboarding ramp over there by making a market in local fiat. So we're making a Bitcoin price in local Kenyan shillings, in Ugandan shillings, Tanzanian shillings, Ghanaian setis. Like that's my business right now is to make that market and then to do last mile um, payment collection and delivery. So we make it really easy, fast and quick. 
for people to buy Bitcoin and for people to sell their Bitcoin. Let's take real estate as an example. When we want to do a valuation on the real estate, when we've got all the transactions and the rent roll going on on the blockchain or in you know, our venture capital investment that's going on over there, 80 or 90% of the revenues are on the blockchain, all of a sudden it's a whole lot easier to kind of understand the economic activity that's going on and for investors to actually be allocating capital to those types of projects, right? Exactly. I mean, even for, as I said before, diaspora who are familiar with the country, who have moved abroad, there's a huge desire to invest in real estate. It's an asset that a lot of Kenyans specifically, and I'll speak only to Kenya right now, um, truly the door. And they have these kind of investment groups called Chamas. So you'll see like a large group of Kenyans um, in the UK have an investment group which invests in real estate. And for them, it is hard to kind of monitor the investments and to gather funds. And when I say hard, I mean a little time consuming, expensive with all the fees, the transactions. I mean, monetizing that and making the payments happen over a decentralized currency where you can monitor the blockchain is a lot of cool stuff. In fact, there's a company called Chama Pesa, um, good friends of ours who are using the Ricardian method, a uh, Ricardian contract to kind of uh, digitize all those transactions in an investment group. So there's a lot of practical applications where you can kind of skip over any sort of legacy technology that never really occurred. So when we're talking about like an investment group, I mean, imagine if the apartment complex were issued in some type of a colored coins type of situation that could trade around with the diaspora and then the, the rental dividends uh, or payouts that could be made. We'd know exactly who to pay and sure. how to do it. And we're sure. collecting all the funds. Sure. And then um, at Pets, of course, we have like a multiple payout options. So one of the new features we'll be launching soon is... Um, kind of a organizational payments. So you can upload a salary payroll for like 50 to 100 people. Um, give me all their mobile phone numbers and the amount of salary in the day you want to pay it out. And we'll do like a lump sum payment with one Bitcoin fee. Um, we can do that for invoicing, for suppliers, deliverables, anything like that. So we're trying to make it very easy for organizations to get in and out of Bitcoin. What other types of daily use cases, like practical use cases, could we be looking at? Uh, for example, I was watching Bloomberg, and there's this new kind of solar panel company over right. there. Maybe you could describe that and like how Bitcoin could be applied to these types of use cases and how they could actually make things a lot more profitable and seamless and slick sure. and maybe even have a charitable aspect to them. Sure. Mcopa has a SIM card embedded in the solar home units that they sell. So just like a good old-fashioned lease-to-own or layaway plan, people can purchase a solar home system to power their TV, their generator, their lighting system in their home, and then they pay monthly installments via this mobile money. And if they don't pay, the system gets shut down, and if they do pay, the SIM card turns the system on. And you can make a payment, like a micropayment at any given time to let that happen. It's a really great kind of layaway plan. Now, this works great within Kenya where it's a closed-loop plan, but every time this, this company goes to a new country, they've got to integrate with that local mobile money. I mean, having a one unified monocurrency, of course, helps companies work across borders. And then when you talk about a, a remittance play, so people from abroad paying the solar utility bills, it's easiest for them to send it over in one mono-digital currency. So I think internationalizing, getting out of these closed loops, is where you really start to see digital currencies what, add value. What about, you know, we, we kind of hit on it a little bit earlier with property rights and real estate. Hoppy and Guzman wrote about how property rights are really what laid the foundation to prosperity. 
So, and Greg Maxwell, he's talked about kind of trying to abstract away the control of the ASIC mining hardware and tying it so that it only mines according to instructions given to it that have been signed by a particular private key. That way we can still have centralized physical mining capacity, but it's still decentralized in terms of the ownership because it's being controlled by the private keys. What about the Internet of Things? What about investments, solar panels that could be controlled by private keys in the Bitcoin network and transactions that take place, or maybe even real estate, and like locking or unlocking the door, uh, things of this nature? Do you see that as being a potential area for Bitcoin companies to innovate in, for investors to be allocating capital in order to generate more wealth and prosperity in these uh, developing markets? Yeah, I mean... Uh, I mean for sure. I mean, um, the, the biggest use case I see right now is there's a big divide in between what individuals believe they own and then what the government acknowledges that they've owned. So often you have... And are you, are you talking about in Africa or just I'm, worldwide? I'm talking about in two countries, like maybe Kenya and Nigeria, for Be, example. Because we have the same problem yeah. with <laughs> hypothecation and rehypothecation right. in the Western well, even uh, developed down financial systems. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about Kenya or Nigeria, for example. Kenya specifically, we have a big land grab problem is what they call it. First of all, as a non-resident, I can't really own a lot of different properties. I can get like a 99-year lease, and when the government signed the new constitution, a lot of property was retaken and reclaimed. And you see in Zimbabwe and some places in Southern Africa, like um, the reclamation of, of property owned by non-nationals. And then even nationals, there was just a big problem in Kenya with a school came back from their school break, and the playground had been co-opted by a government official and was being made into a road pieces of one of our airports in Nairobi were being slowly taken over so that the end of a runway is now a residential development. And I mean, it just makes no kind of sense. But who's going to fight um, Who's going to fight the land rights and who's to say who owns what? I mean, with, without the rule of law in some places or without really um, ability to prosecute certain authorities, it's really hard to kind of approve land rights. You know, when 10 people hold the same land deed, how do you how do you guarantee that you know you're the true owner? So something like a blockchain where you know it's a public record where it's not a problem of both the buyer and the seller gaining trust. This is both the buyer and the seller agree, but it's like a third party with potentially more political power suddenly coming into the equation and deciding they own the property or want to take the property and not acknowledging the right. So if you had a kind of an immutable kind of record, that actually is, is a huge deal and like it's something that could really um, help disrupt the local market. Yeah, I know we uh, actually, when I interviewed Jim Robinson from RRE, he told a story about someone from New York state government who the biggest pain point is he gets about, you know, hundreds of calls a week where people can't find their mortgage to their house. And so having a canonical version of who owns what land uh, has application not just in the U.S., not just in New York. But also, it sounds like over here in Kenya. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, and yet it's the same type of software could power both. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's very easy to get a, a official-looking document. It's not always easy if someone kind of contests that document to prove that it's authentic. Even if you jump through twelve hoops to get it, you know, somebody else could have jumped through the same twelve hoops or not. So, I mean. You know, we have this problem with IP right now. We have another website that's copying us quite closely. I mean, we could take out a patent, but how would we enforce it? Right. So, I mean, sometimes it's easy to go through the legal process, but when it comes to like enforce those rules. So what are you kind of most optimistic about over there in Africa? Like, what projects, like, I mean, we're talking about changing the lifestyle of 
an entire generation in such a fast time period. Right. Like really raising standard of living. So, oh, okay, well, let's not, I'm not going to overreach and say I'm going to solve a continent's worth of problems because there's a lot of smart people thinking about that, a lot of money going into that. But I will say one thing, I mean, um, high-speed internet has just come to the region a few years ago. People thought it was going to become one of the call center heads uh, of the world because it's Anglophone and um, East Africa, and it's in the same time zone as Central and Eastern Europe. But the high-speed internet brings just opportunity to a lot of people. And I met a, young, a lot of young people coming out of school who said, I never knew about this or that until I was access to the internet and finally able to kind of meet my tribe online, you know, or learn the skill that I didn't know about or get opportunity to things that are not available to me locally. And um, I think the coolest thing that I see is people buying Bitcoin to pay for their servers, to pay for like access to website domains, to start their businesses, to pay for simple, basic technical infrastructure, to get going and to get connected. I think what Bitcoin lets them do is participate in the global commerce specifically for like technophiles or young developers to sort of start that middle layer of that beefy ecosystem so that they can help build companies that service their own communities. So just getting access to that infrastructure. You couldn't buy an Amazon AWS server without an international credit card, which a lot of people don't have. And Bitcoin has allowed that through gift. And, and even if they do have, a third of the transactions are fraudulent. Yeah. They yeah. come out of Africa. Yeah. So nobody really accepts payments. Yeah, from I mean, African my, my own credit card. Every time I make a payment and, you know, we're a reputable business, I have to call my bank from each store and say, I'm about to make a payment. Are you guys ready for this? And then we make the payment and then they call me back and they go, Was that you? I said, Yes, it was. Like, I'm basically on the phone with them every time I make a payment with a credit card. So for me, I love paying in Bitcoin for travel through Expedia or like Cheap Air. And when those guys don't offer me the itinerary, I'm really struggling. I have to take cash in an envelope to a travel agent or um, try to use my credit card, which is a very low limit. So I'm stuck in a lot of ways. And I am a, a privileged international with accounts in several countries. Um, so, and, and identity. I mean, yeah. you actually have a birth certificate, yeah. right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's a birth certificate there, but I mean, I'm an Ivy educated American with uh, a passport and international bank accounts, and even I can't buy a plane ticket sometimes. So, I mean, it's really hard for a 22-year-old Kenyan who's never studied abroad, who might have a birth certificate, might live in a nice house, might have a generator and internet access, but doesn't have that international financial buying power. And I think that's the exciting part right now. I mean, not to say that I support totally trickle-down economics, but I do like to see um, infrastructure being built and um, payments are the first thing to help finance that infrastructure. Yeah, and there's so much opportunity for people over there that just didn't exist 30 years ago. You know, we can get $100 tablets, we can get internet access, yeah. they can go to Khan Academy, yeah. get yeah. access to all exactly. the best learning in the exactly. world for free. Yeah. Uh, then they could start tutoring people via Skype. And making money. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I mean, they have a lot to contribute to this world. It, we, yeah. You know, the distribution of IQs is the same there as here, yeah, right? Yeah, and it's so funny. Like, a big chunk of our users are people called academic writers, like writing term papers and academic papers for lazy American students. <laughs> Doing their homework. Getting <laughs> Pretty paid much. For it. Getting paid to do the homework. And it's so funny. And, you know, everybody speaks so, like, derogatorily about, you know, these populations. And, like, they're writing the papers for our children. <laughs> <laughs> making them look smart. That, getting that's their like, A. <laughs> That's like the my favorite story. We meet these academic writers. They're like, oh my god, these homework assignments are so easy. You know, these lazy American students, and um, you know they're getting paid in PayPal or they're getting paid in other and ways to currencies. And I, I just you know enabling global business in a lot of different ways. Uh oh, we better par- 
parents beware. Like your kid <laughs> might be outsourcing his homework to Kenya they are. and paying with Bitcoin. They are. They just not might. They definitely are. I'll give you 50 different academic writings. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting place to see, see growing. We, our good friends uh, of a, a Python uh, Development Academy in one of the slums and one of the, the bad neighborhoods, and they're like teaching really young high school kids and um, early college guys um, Python. And it's yeah. really great. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I actually edited a, a book, uh, Bitcoin for Kids, written by like three sisters that were 12, 13, and 14. And they highlighted a Dutch kid in there, Plasmotech, who's done a bunch of programming for Bitcoin, like Python programming, and somehow been able to accumulate 1,500 Bitcoins, which is over a million dollars. Wow. It's like, it's like a 13-year-old kid now. <laughs> uh, but a kid in a slum in Kenya now has the opportunity to accumulate wealth, store it in something that's got the most security in the whole world. Right. You know, a, a supercomputing network backed by mining capacity that's 60,000 times greater than the 500 largest supercomputers combined. I mean, right. his capital is now safe. It's not going to get stolen by the local warlord. Sure. It's not going to get devalued with or devalued. I mean, the problem is that that kid probably doesn't have um, cheap data. Or maybe a computer. Maybe he has it at school. Maybe he has it at dev school that my friends have set up in some other ways. I mean, still the people with access to data. I mean, data is still like relatively expensive. I pay about $50 for unlimited data a month, which is not that big deal, but to some people. So it is a bit exclusive still. You definitely don't have free Wi-Fi spots and hardware is expensive to come by and you don't get the best brands over there. But it's getting there. Cheaper data is coming. I mean, I certainly in the last two years have seen my taxi drivers are now WhatsApping me. And, you know, uh, uh, a gardener that works on our street, like, is constantly putting Facebook photos up every time he does something cool in the garden. So you're starting to see the trickle down in the urban areas, and then I'll move to rural areas. Google has been a big influence in the region, electrifying cities and putting out hot zones. So so it's coming. The data's coming, and then it's, it's a big turning point. So we're, we're going to have billions of people, like, come online, add their skills and talents to the global economy, Bitcoin's going to be the language of money yeah. that they're likely going to be speaking because yeah. it's interoperable. Right, right. As well, opposed to the, these closed loop systems. It's the internet money, right, yeah. The, the magic internet money. Yeah. Uh, th this has been yeah. great. Thanks for taking the time. We've had uh, Elizabeth Rossiello, CEO and founder of BitPesa, doing wonderful work over there in Africa. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate. 